0: There are rainforests in North America, if you know where to look. Shrouded along the shores of the Pacific Northwest, these rainforests swap palm trees for cedars and toucans for ravens. Beneath snow-capped volcanic peaks, their canopies foster a lush ecosystem of rivers, wetlands and beaches that resemble few other landscapes in America. Today's guest is an expert in their waters And she's here to take us on a journey to the Olympic Peninsula, a place that she calls home. the Get Lost Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sills, a freelance writer for outlets around the globe. Today's guest is a rod-carrying historian who's busy digging through North America's untold indigenous stories when she's not plucking salmon from the rivers of the Pacific Northwest or hoisting crab pots from the Pacific Ocean. She's a member of the Quinault Indian Nation who's hosted her own outdoor show on NBC, and she's been featured on programs nationally like The Today Show. Her name is Ashley Lewis, a.k.a. Badash Outdoors, and she joins us now. Hi. Hello, Joe. How's it going?
1: It's going really good. I'm super glad to be here.
0: Thank you for coming on the Get Lost Podcast. Finally...
1: This has been a thing that needs needed to happen long ago. Uh,
0: we've been talking about this for years since we met at the world renowned Bassmaster Classic. Ah, uh, yes. You want to tell people what the Bassmaster Classic is?
1: You know, it was just. Um, I think people like to talk about it as the Super Bowl of fishing. Mm-hmm. So, or if you like, took the Super Bowl and smashed it with WWE, but inserted bass. This is kind of what the Bassmaster Classic is. There's like an arena. There's like cheering people. Yeah. And there's a competition for catching big bass. It's really cool.
0: It, it, they even like come in with their theme songs. So like imagine a basketball arena is so like WWE. Yeah. Um, these guys drive in with a pickup truck and a bass boat and they have fish in you know, a live well in the back. And they hoist them up as literally like theme songs play and like video screens flash and lights and people hold signs kind of weird for sure
1: it's amazing and and i can't think of a more fitting place to have met you oh
0: my god (laughs) (laughs) um that was an interesting story because i actually was there to interview you uh, about a time that you were fishing in mexico and you actually We're part of a team that had a bass boat airlifted into a lake via helicopter?
1: Yeah, the one boat challenge where we get dropped off on a lake that is an undisclosed location to us. And then um in a reality-style uh competition, we compete to against other people who don't know the area and we fly boats around.
0: I mean, so (laughs) are you like a professional helicopter boat? angler, or is this like a one-time thing?
1: I mean, it may or may not be on my resume, resume, but like, I think just a one-time thing for me. Okay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, Safe to say that's like not the way most people launch a boat, but it's probably the <laughs> most badass way.
1: Yeah. It's the right way. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely the right way. If it's an option, you should launch your boat from a helicopter.
0: Um, I want to talk to you today a little bit about where you're from, because you're from the Olympic Peninsula, which is like this really incredible part of the United States that is just unlike any other section of the country. Um, But before I do that, I want to ask you about your role as a historian. Mm -hmm. Because these, like, two things in the intro don't seem to go together. Like, oh, you uh, are an angler. Cool. And you have an outdoor TV show. Okay. Like, I get that. Uh, But a historian?
1: It seems, yeah. When you um, present it that way, it's like, okay, a female fishing guide, you know, from the Northwest, storyteller, historian, TV show. Yeah, yeah, all of these things, they seem very interesting put together. Yeah. But in my world, there's nothing that makes more sense to me and a lot of the people where I'm from. So telling stories is a distinctly indigenous method of carrying history on and i love telling those stories and uh the quinault indian nation we are salmon people so i love telling stories about salmon and i love fishing for salmon as my ancestors have since time immemorial uh, so to me it's a natural fit to tell those stories on the platforms that make sense for me mm-hmm. um, and then ground that in salmon fishing Deep in the Olympic Peninsula, so in that sense, culturally, uh, it 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 makes uh, it makes perfect sense.
0: Can you describe uh, the Quinault Nation and and just pinpoint where that is, and tell us about the relationship with salmon historically?
1: So in the lower forty-eight, the mainland, the very upper left point of that almost as high as you can go without crossing over into canada this area of washington state is the olympic peninsula what is incredibly unique about this place is that um it is a section of land where mountains ocean rivers like beaches all of this meets up in one spot that sounds like amazing it's incredible so as Um, weather comes in off the ocean, it hits the Olympic mountains and it drops rain. So we have a temperate rainforest on the Olympic peninsula. It is one of the very few temperate rainforests in North America.
0: Wow! Yeah. I don't think people realize there's like a rainforest actually in the United States.
1: And when they think of rainforest, they think of like tropical rainforests but a temperate rainforest is entirely different. So, you know, people think of Seattle, Washington as the rainy city. Mm -hmm. Seattle gets 39 inches of rain a year, whereas there are parts of the Olympic Peninsula that get nearly 200 inches of rain a year. And so this is just a drastic difference. Yeah. Really
0: unfathomable to me.
1: It is. And there are um, a beautiful four seasons, you know, spring, summer, fall, Mm -hmm. winter. But what's interesting about that much rain and, and being in the rainforest is everything is incredibly dense and lush, Mm -hmm. and you have this beautiful season, this beautiful growing season where everything's green, and then you juxtapose that with the rainy season. It's an intense amount of rain. It's a lot of gray sky and mist, constant mist off the ocean. It creates a sense of unreality when you come into this place because you have this beautiful area and you have this intense environment kind of all culminating into what is the Old Peninsula. It
0: kind of sounds like the perfect setting for storytelling.
1: It it is... There's nothing better. Yeah, It offers so much. There's so much variety. There's um, something really, really different to do in each season, um, which is what has made, historically, Pacific Northwest tribes so powerful. There's such an abundance of resources Mm -hmm. um, and a deep knowledge system behind how to thrive in those environments. So it's incredible.
0: So how long have people been living there?
1: Uh, So we always say since time immemorial, and I think like 15,000 years... Is it's pretty immemorial. Like, it's immemorial. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, people about 15,000 years, salmon, uh, somewhere around that time as well. I think um, the most recent numbers are like 12,000, 11, 12,000 years. Really? Mm-hmm. So the
0: evolution of humans and the evolution of salmon is connected?
1: Yeah, kind of happening at the same time. And in our creation stories... Um, our creator makes the people, and then the next thing that he makes is the salmon. Um, and, you know, taken from, you know, this specific piece of earth that we know in the Quinnell Indian Nation um, to make both of those things. And so we see our lives inextricably entangled with salmon lives.
0: Everyone knows what they say about fish stories, but this one is true. A while back, I was mountain biking along the Arkansas River near a place called the Big Dam Bridge. In the distance, I could see the afternoon sun falling over Little Rock's lone round peak. Beside me, I saw a tranquil, rippling pool next to an old railroad bridge, secluded from the rapid river's flow. It was exactly the kind of spot that I'd biked there for. So I hopped off the bike, reached into a backpack, and pulled out a fishing rod. Then I spent the rest of the afternoon watching time slowly roll by in the warm afternoon sun. I even caught a few fish right there in that spot, with my bike laying on the ground and the shallow sand beneath my feet. This is the kind of fishing story that doesn't have a big catch or a record bass attached to it. It's just a peaceful afternoon by the water. The kind that helps you unwind from all of the problems in life. If you listen to this podcast, chances are you've got a nose for adventure yourself. And if that nose leads you to the water, I suggest picking up a tool that can help you enjoy more moments like these. When I travel, I often pack a fishing rod. And though many portable options abound, I like the rods from Wisconsin's St. Croix rods the best. St. Croix's Avid Trek and Triumph Travel Rods break down into a case that fits in a backpack, or an overhead bend, or behind just about any car seat. They're designed in the USA and made with care from a family-run company that knows some fishing stories don't require any exaggeration. Sometimes, just being on the water is enough. You can learn more about St. Croix's Travel Rods at stcroixrods.com. And you can tell them the Get Lost Podcast sent you. Now, back to the show. So this is history dating back uh, what's prehistory, really, um, before the Great Pyramids even.
1: Yeah, and um, especially in America, we like to think of like early history as like early American history, Revolutionary history, things yeah. like that. It is a drop in the bucket for what our The history is of the land that we live on. It's incredible. And I'm really glad to be digging into some of those stories. It
0: must be interesting from that standpoint, too, because I think there's a connection here where when you grew up there, obviously, and and you go out into the forest and you go out into the river and you're digging for knowledge and treasures and stories in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But then you also have the ability to dig into archives and records and um, oral histories Mm -hmm. To shine a light on events that really have sort of laid in the shadow of history books.
1: It's so true. A lot of history is told looking over the shoulders of Europeans, not necessarily looking through the eyes of the indigenous people that have been here for millennia. And so really spending time fishing. Yeah, I love fishing. I love eating a salmon. Don't get me wrong. But being next to my Quinault peers and my quinault family and hearing these stories like this is the true history lesson that's the education that i get when i'm there fishing on the rivers
0: uh later on in the show i'm going to ask you to take us on a journey fishing with you and and i want you to put us in the boat with you on the ground with you in the water with you but right now i want to ask you about some history because let's skip from prehistory up to recent history. Thanks I spoke with you a couple weeks ago and got to learn about an event that I absolutely had zero clue about. I did not know this was a thing in America Erase at all. Mm. Uh, it's called the Salmon Wars. Mm-hmm. And you actually have written a, a lot about this and researched a lot about the Salmon Wars. Can you educate our audience on what exactly went down and when this was.
1: Sure, and this is going back to the 1960s, 1970s, um, and we term this the Fish Wars, and it's about salmon fishing. Um, So... Treaties are made in Washington state in, you know, 1850s. 1855 was the Treaty of Quinault. Um, most tribes in Western Washington, most salmon tribes, the treaty tribes, are right around that time in the 1850s. And in those treaties, when indigenous people ceded their land, they secured protection for their salmon and the rights to fish as they always had in their usual accustomed grounds and stations. This so, is,
0: so this is a deal that they made with the US government at the time. Yes. In Washington DC. Yeah. Wrote it out in paper.
1: Yeah, they saw what was coming. They saw the future um, that they had at a, a, a moment in time to try to shape. And so with seeding land, this was, a, this was a big loss to indigenous people. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily a, um, a fun negotiation. Yeah. These negotiations are taking place after smallpox has swept the area. People are in mourning. People are in bad shape. And then the government comes in and decides this would be a good time to negotiate with people. It's not a wonderful moment. No. But indigenous people understood where they were grounded and what was important to them. Mm-hmm. Land is really important. They ceded land because they understood that their future lived in their ability to fish and continue fishing and eat fish.
0: Oh my God. So it was literally a trade of saying, listen, okay, this government these people, like, the future is this. And these people are hell bent on taking it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And we either negotiate or we get something or we don't negotiate and we get nothing.
1: Yeah, and these negotiators were um, brilliant. Truly, they understood that, you know, seeing the land go would be very difficult, and and it was very difficult to lose all of this land. Also, meant the resources that came along with them. Sometimes this was places that people visited during times of the year where maybe their rivers weren't productive, or you know, they, it was good hunting territory. Yeah, this was a big loss to Indigenous people. And they did that to ensure that their fish would be protected for them. They secured their rights to fish because they saw themselves into the future through them.
0: Okay. So we've got that going on in like the 1850s and then we get up into the 1960s where, you know, you've got the Beatles on the radio, you've got the Mm -hmm. echoes of rock and roll are really getting going. Led Zeppelin is on the Rolling Stones are on Vietnam War is happening. This is history. Every one of us is familiar with. We've seen the photos. In color, we've seen the photos in black and white. Yeah. We know the music and the culture of that era. But we might not all know the story of the Fish Wars.
1: Sure. And that's great context, too, because also with this time is the Black Power Movement, the Red Power Movement. There are these social movements that are also sweeping the nation. Mm -hmm. And leading up to the Fish Wars, the occupation of Alcatraz. Indigenous people retook their land in Alcatraz. Um, So the, the tension, the moment is right. The tension is high. And Indigenous people are looking to reclaim their territories and ensure that they have what was guaranteed to them, through treaties. So in the 1960s and in the 1970s, the state of Washington is trying to impose their regulations on indigenous people on their own rivers. Mm -hmm. However, reservation and treaty rivers are reserved and um, secured for indigenous people. The state of Washington has no authority to govern them. Uh, And so this turned contentious and um, you know, game wardens were dragging people off their rivers, arresting people, uh, essentially saying, you know, we don't really care about your treaties. Th- this is the state of Washington, and you're going to follow our rules. And Indigenous people pushed back hard. Yeah.
0: So when you 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 touched on people being dragged out of the river, and I kind of thought that was hyperbole when you told it to me at first, but mm-hmm. actually, no. You were quick to open a book and point to a photograph, like. Yeah, there's actually people in the river being dragged out by game wardens.
1: Yeah, there's this wonderful document a uh, documentary on YouTube. Uh it's called as Long as the River Runs and I think when I show this to students and friends and and anyone who's interested in this, the piece of the documentary I show them is when um women are taking on fishing uh because their husbands are arrested and so you know women are in the boats as is it's yeah customary women fish um, but they're in the boats and they're pulling the nets and they're gathering their fish. This is an act of resistance. And uh, they know that the game wardens are going to come for them. Mm -hmm. They do. Mm -hmm. And they quite literally tow their canoes to the side of the river and attempt to arrest them. The women say, no, this is our right. Uh, So they quite literally drag them up the bank. And the women are clung to their fishing nets and their fish. And the game wardens just drag them on up. It's a profound moment.
0: Was this newsworthy outside of the Quinault Nation? Was this...
1: Yeah, so the epicenter of the fish wars is um, Nisqually, Puyallup, Muckleshoot, the Puget Sound region in Washington. But the outcome of uh, this event will impact all treaty tribes in Washington state. So quinaults, macaws, everybody is involved in this. Um, So as this is happening... um, Tension is really building between sport fishers and indigenous fishers. Mm-hmm. So, uh, indigenous people stage fish ins. And um, the height of the fish wars, I mean, arguably in 1970, the fall of 1970, uh, Tacoma game wardens arrested 72 people, um, 10 of them were kids, and tear gassed them and like fired shots at them. People were actually shooting at people um, trying Over to fishing. fish fish their fish in their rivers. And so, I mean, this is gone to court at this point and um, indigenous people rallied, got attorneys, Mm -hmm. pulled together. And um, the court case, U.S. v. Washington, otherwise known as the Bolt decision, um, ended up uh, deciding in favor of indigenous people. So they got to secure their rights to fish And it further assigned value to that. So 50% of the fish, half of all harvestable fish would go to indigenous people and the other half would go to the state. And it also decided that the state of Washington does not have jurisdiction over indigenous people.
0: Wow. Mm -hmm. An incredible part of American history. And when you put it that way, it makes a lot more sense to me of why these two worlds blend together, how you can be a steelhead guide and also a historian
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Human history, it seems is a lot more linked to fish than I ever thought.
1: And that's something I've always understood as an indigenous person. And a lot of indigenous people and salmon people really get that. And I would say even sport fishers who grow up fishing and eating fish for dinner and fishing with their families and feeding their families through fishing, which, you know, you people really do in the Pacific Northwest. Salmon sure. anglers like really like to eat their salmon. Um, what I found and what I continue to find, um, and I really saw this through guiding, is when you introduce people to that lifestyle, when you can ground people in what matters, in the rivers and in the land that they are on, it just kind of flips a switch and they start to see it in new ways. And so, yeah, we are all connected to salmon. We are all, con- and if, we, if you like clean water, if you like clean air, salmon are a part of this in our ecosystems. Um, so I think it's tied to everything and everybody.
0: Before we get back to the show, I want to take just a few seconds to tell you about a place I recently had the chance to get lost at in person Tortola. Jungle hikes lined with banana trees, a strange man at a mountaintop restaurant, and one of the best surf schools in the Caribbean can all be found there. It's the kind of place where you really need to spend more than just a few days hitting the most popular beaches on Instagram. Instead, I recommend setting up shop for a while with our newest show sponsor, Seascape Villas. Now, let's be clear, I happened upon this place by chance and I really did stay there. In the Caribbean, reliable Wi Fi and a quiet place to work from home can sometimes be hard to come by. And in peak season, rental cars can also be really difficult to find. But when I hopped off of the ferry from St. Thomas on Tortola's West End, Seascape Villas had an SUV ready for me at the dock. The condo itself made the perfect base, not only to explore Tortola from, but also to keep up with writing assignments and conference calls from as well. Sunset views couldn't be beat, and the entire place was affordable enough for a travel rider on a budget to splurge for a couple of nights. A fully equipped kitchen made cooking meals easy. Meanwhile, I was able to get some incredible R&R while island hopping across the Caribbean on assignment. So check out Seascape Villas on Airbnb or VRBO, or book directly at seascapevillasbvi.com. Tell them to the Get Lost podcast sent you, and they just might hook you up. I want to talk to you about that lens that you give people when you're guiding them and i think it's a perfect segue into getting lost on the get lost podcast.
1: <laughs> Let's get lost.
0: Let's get lost. Um so what i'd ask you to do is take us with you mm. to a specific place that is dear to you, that you love, mm. that you've had wonderful experiences with, perhaps as a guide, perhaps by yourself, and just walk us through a morning Um, from your cup of coffee Mm -hmm. with a French press to catching a fish perhaps, or to making it all the way back home. Like, what does that look like there? What do you see hear, Smell feel?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. So my favorite place is the Quinault river, of course, on the, um, Olympic peninsula. And I think my best experiences come shared with other people. So when I have a guided trip set up, I wake up in the morning Of course, I'm from like Washington, like we drink coffee. Um, So we drink too much coffee. And then I head out to the river where I've asked people to meet me at about 45 minutes before daybreak, because that gives us time to load up the boat, go drop it off down the river bend where we're going to ultimately um, end up for the day and come back and get in the boat and launch. We push off the bank right at about the time the sun is coming up and I can see downriver. This is the magic moment in my eyes because the river starts revealing itself to you, especially if you've never seen it. Um, I've seen it a million times, but I get to see it through clients' eyes, someone who's never seen that river before. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the river reveals itself. There's huge redwood trees, lots of cedar trees, lots of spruce trees. There's a wonderful glacial teal or emerald green river, depending on the season that we're in, because the snow is melting from the Olympics and running off, the water's really, really cold. It's crisp. There's always a nice fog rising up to meet the mist coming down. The forest is so dense and big and looming, and the air is dense from moisture. Everything is like holding you in place. You mm-hmm. feel like hugged in by this environment, and right where you belong in the center of the river, drifting down into it.
0: It sounds a little bit like you get lost in that time, and those minutes hang in the air.
1: Yeah, you're not going. You're not um, considering time based off of your iPhone anymore. You're you're judging time based off of like how much daylight you have left and where the sun might be in the sky because you're not quite sure that you can see it through the clouds and so you you're the river is revealed in this daylight moment and then as you go like this doesn't necessarily get darker by the time you're at the end of the day but the like wind switches. Um, when you're at the Pacific Ocean, like you see the sunset as like a fiery sky. You don't always see the sun drowning into the ocean. Um, but in the afternoon, the coastal wind always picks up. So once you hit the, what I call the wind tunnel, you're drifting down the river, and then all of a sudden you're drifting up the river. That's about noon every day. And so you start basing your decisions. Placing yourself in time based off of what you're feeling happening around you. And it's a great experience.
0: What do you see in the eyes of someone who has just booked a trip and never been to this place before?
1: Curiosity. Why their home rivers don't look like that. What is different about this place versus where they go fishing and hang out. Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is, um, there's a lot of answers, but I think that the most profound one is this level of care. So there is no development alongside this river. There are no dams on the river, and there's a lot of protection set in place by the Quinault Nation to ensure that that never happens for the sake of these environments. You know, there's been problems in the past uh, through like logging and... And and things like that, but um, there is a level of care that is placed around these rivers that is palpable when you're there. You don't see trash laying around our, our rivers. You don't see you don't hear a bunch of noise. Like it is really just you in that place. And people, the way I see it through their eyes is they start asking questions about like why does this seem so different? Yeah. Why does this feel? Like it looks kind of similar to back home. Maybe that's in Seattle or, you know, across the sound, but, but there still seems like something that's a world apart. And when people start becoming curious about their environment, um, that's when I feel like, okay, we have shifted a mindset a little bit here because you don't really start caring about natural spaces until you feel really connected with them. When you go out in the Quinault in a drift boat with me, you will feel very connected to the place that you're in.
0: Let's talk about connecting with the salmon itself, Um, because I think you've painted a really vivid scene of what the river itself is like, Uh, and (laughs) you're probably going to get blown up by listeners who want you to take them out there now. (laughs) Um, But let's talk about the salmon itself, because these are fish. Um, that actually live in the ocean Mm -hmm. and the only reason they're in the river is to migrate, I guess. Yeah. Um, can you talk to us about what it's like to cast a line and connect with that fish?
1: Yeah, so the salmon is a really interesting fish. The salmon is steelhead, anadromous fish. They live their life in the open ocean, even though they start in the river. So they're born in the river, they drift out to the ocean, they grow big, and then they return to the river. So the area that I fish is the last couple miles of river before the ocean. Mm-hmm. So when a salmon is stage up at the river mouse and, you know, the biological clock ticks and they all decide to rush up river and, you know, just another half mile around the corner is Ashley and her clients waiting to meet them. It's like
0: you're Taylor Swift and the gates to the concert have opened.
1: Yeah. They're all coming. And all the Swifties
0: are coming in from the ocean. That's right. And they're getting off the trains and the Metro and they're going to Madison Square Garden and there you are.
1: Right. In a drift boat. Yeah. All right. You got it. This is... I am the Taylor Swift of the Olympic Peninsula. Yes. No. Um, so this moment happens, right? They all rush up river. And when we meet the Pacific salmon, it is never more vibrant or powerful in its entire life. And the reason why is because the moment it hits the fresh water, it is going to spawn and end its life. It's going to spawn and reproduce more fish mm-hmm. that are going to, like the life cycle this continues that its way.
0: life's purpose.
1: It's a slice of yeah. So it has gained as much fat stores and strength as it can in the ocean. And once it is at like optimal like power and um optimal like fat, that is what it is using to get itself upriver into fresh water and to spawn. So when I need it, it is never more vibrant or powerful or like fatty or delicious and its entire life as it is in that moment when we need it. So when you hook into one of those fish, mm-hmm. they are not playing with you. They're they are they're trying to go and do their business. They're not trying to hang out with you. So they're a very powerful fight and it's very exciting. They're an incredibly acrobatic fish. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I didn't realize that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. it's really fun. Yeah. That part's exciting. And and also um, the fish never tastes better than it does in that moment. I mean, out in the ocean at, you know, around that stage of its life. But, um, but really right when they hit the fresh water, that's, that's when so you it's want to very have different
0: from like the farm salmon you would get at a grocery store.
1: It is very different than the farm salmon that you would get at a grocery store. Yeah. So
0: you hook this fish, um, and I didn't realize they were acrobatic. And in my mind, that's like a tarpon or something where yeah. they're, they're dancing on top of the water and, sure. and doing flips and tricks and things yeah. like that. Um, yeah. so that's accurate
1: they're super acrobatic in that way yeah and each species of salmon is actually quite different so i would say the most spirited is the steelhead this is the fish that's going to come out of the water and do somersaults and drag you down to the bottom of the river and then come back up and leap into the air like this is your super acrobatic fish yeah chinook those are the power houses. So they grab your lure, your bait, and you might see them like boil right at the surface, and like you know, you'll see a tail come out of the water. And then they are going to try to drive you to the very bottom of the river and hold you there as long as they can, and they can because they are so powerful. And Coho, um, I call them the death rollers because as soon as they get hooked. They just want to roll and roll and roll and try to spin you out of the situation. And yeah. they're pretty good at it. Yeah. So all of them are a little bit different. And when you get familiar with them, if they're all in the river at the same time, which does happen, you can hook into one. And based on how it's fighting, you're like, oof, I've got a Chinook on the line or a steelhead or whatever.
0: So this is a fish that to me would spawn a lot of lore. And mm-hmm. I'm not from that part of the U.S. I'm from the South, which mm-hmm. for y- people overseas is a long fucking way away. <laughs> like, <laughs> all right.
1: There's some distance. Yeah. <laughs> it's
0: a long way in a totally different world. And so mm-hmm. we don't, we do not have salmon mm-hmm. where I'm from, not even anywhere close to where I'm from.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but to me, a fish that does so many things like that would create passion mm-hmm. in the individuals that pursue that fish. Mm-hmm. Is this a common ground that those on both sides of the fish wars were able to find, or did it cause even more friction?
1: You know, unfortunately, in the 1960s and 70s, it caused a lot of friction. It causes a lot of friction today. And what we've seen in the last several years, um, imperfectly, but a growing sort of air of consensus between the two, because the the only good thing about the salmon recovery issues in the Pacific Northwest is that everybody wants more salmon. Everyone has the same goal, yes. but how we do that is the part where um, people become you know, fractioned into different camps and that's really, really difficult. Um, but the love of the salmon very much lives in uh, a lot of people in the Pacific Northwest. It's an icon of the Pacific Northwest right alongside the orca whale. Um, what a lot of people in the Northwest understand and people outside don't really understand is when a salmon comes in to spawn and die in the river, they bring with them a lot of nutrients from the ocean that forests and clean water really, really need. So the salmon brings in these nutrients, they die in the rivers, they float to the side of the river, bears eat them. And a lot of their carcass and their body goes back into the flora and fauna and into the riverbanks and, Um, Out from that grows strong, healthy forests that clean our water and clean our air. And so people in the Pacific Northwest understand that um, the things that are really important to us, clean water, clean air, especially in a time where climate change is a big conversation. We want clean water. We want clean air. And we can attribute uh, help from the salmon to get there because um, that's a part of what they do as well.
0: I want to open a can of worms. Let's do it. Elwa River Dam.
1: Ooh, beautiful story. Beautiful story. Everybody should know. Whether you're in the Pacific Northwest or no, should know the story of the Elwa Dam. It is the single most important story of hope, in my opinion, uh, when it comes to river restoration and uh, building consensus among different user groups that are like at odds. It's this is, wonderful. This is
0: why I wanted to bring this up. Um, so, for those of you not in the know, there's a wonderful documentary you can view on streaming. It's called Damnation. It talks about the Elwa River Dam, uh, which was a, a dam erected by the United States in I think 1920s, 30s.
1: Oh, I think it was even earlier than that. I think like I don't know. Do you have a year on it?
0: Um, it's an early it's an early 20th century. I was gonna say
1: 1905, 1910.
0: It was erected in 1910. 1910. So the Elwha River Dam was erected in 1910, and it's part of this big dam-building like spree that the U.S. government goes on, um, really all the way up until like the 70s. I, I feel like mm-hmm. they're just building dams, building dams, building reservoirs, um, which in some ways was productive because we need hydropower, of course, uh, and that's certainly better than coal plants. But in other ways, especially when you have a fish like a salmon that needs to go Mm upriver to reproduce, very destructive. Uh, Talk to us about the Elwha situation and how it relates to like the modern scene of salmon and human interaction in the Pacific Northwest.
1: The Elwha River uh, cut off several miles of spawning habitat for salmon and you're right it was put in as a way to you know develop the pacific northwest hydropower is an important part of development uh, throughout the country mm-hmm. and uh the problem is um is that while it provides one resource it erases another and salmon are super important to the indigenous people and a lot of the people in that area the J- jamestown Squalum people um were like integral in the removal of those dams. So the dams put in, the salmon die, the river becomes unfishable. Um, the you know some of the main strains of salmon like no longer are coming up the rivers anymore. Is it basically
0: just become a ghost town, like a ghost river at that point?
1: Yeah, there's two dams, and um, they cannot get up either of the dams. I believe it's certainly not the second one. I don't believe the first one either. Mm-hmm. It's 1910. No one's thinking about conservation yeah. and <laughs> sustainability, right. and certainly not thinking about future for indigenous people. This right. is not something that's happening at the like, time. Like, they're
0: worried about cars replacing horses.
1: Yeah, this is this is what's up. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and among other things. But um, over time, dams are expensive. They cost a lot to repair. And it's been over 100 years now. The dam ended up being more expensive to maintain than it was to take it down. Yeah. And the indigenous people of this area used that moment, leveraged it hard, and um, got a ton of buy-in and consensus from a lot of different stakeholders in the Northwest and led the charge on taking that down. So people uh, in the other corner who didn't want to take it down said, you were about to unleash 100 years of trapped sentiment down this river. You're going to destroy this entire area if you do that. Seems reasonable to me. I mean, yeah, it was certainly... Like a, logical, anyway. Yes, it was certainly a concern, and it was a concern for everybody. Um, but with a really strategic, methodological approach that was also happening alongside Indigenous people and with their consent in steps of this process... Mm-hmm. They took down the first dam and then the second dam a little bit later. And um, within a couple of years, witnessed salmon coming up into the area naturally again. And uh, since then, I think they've even opened a season on that in the last year or so for people to go fishing.
0: This is within a decade.
1: Yeah. And people want to... Yeah, they thought it would take 30 years for this habitat to restore itself. It took a couple. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's viable which is really exciting because people want to say you can't take dams out you can't take it out because of the you know terrible repercussions they will have and we have at the time the All-Wall was the largest scale dam removal in the country and it was a success and that i think is a beacon of hope for how we can do this differently. Like right now, the Klamath in Northern California is coming down. The L W is a part of like helping you nudge that along.
0: The poster child for it. Yeah. Um, as we talk more about like modern daily issues affecting the Olympic peninsula, moving back into that realm. Sure. Um, I want to ask you about climate change. Um, yeah. I mean, this is a coastal community. You're a part of a coastal people that has mm-hmm. been there since time immemorial. Yeah. Sea levels, are rising. Ocean levels are going to go up and temperatures in the ocean are getting hotter. That's fact. That's science. Indisputable. The oceans are getting hotter. Yeah. What is the effect on your people?
1: Yeah. So I feel like this is actually the can of worms. (laughs) The Elwha is just such a beautiful case. It is a bit of a can of worms, but boy, this one feels like a big can of worms.
0: Big can of worms.
1: Big can of climate changing worms.
0: Before we get back to the show, I want to talk to you guys for a quick second about my hometown, Memphis, Tennessee. You guys know that Memphis is a place surrounded by soul. It's where the blues became rock and roll. It's where soul music found its groove and hip-hop turned trap beats into sounds that still top the charts today. I love spending time in Memphis, walking its streets and feeling the energy from decades of recordings rising up from the sidewalk. It's a real thing. When I'm looking for a place to pick up artwork, gifts, or flavors that remind me of home, I always swing by Feelin' Memphis. It's right there, downtown, on South Main Street. Feelin' Memphis is run by my good friend, Tawanda Pirtle, who grew up with me way back when I was just a college dropout designing t-shirts for her chicken joint, Jack Pirtle's Chicken. Tawanda has always been there for me as my career morphed into the world of travel writing and podcasting, And you can usually find her there for you behind the counter at Feelin' Memphis. So, next time you're strolling through downtown, look for the big blue trolley in the window. Tell Tawanda I said hello. While you're in there, scope out some funky, hand curated gift items to share the energy of Memphis with someone you love. That's Feelin' Memphis at 509 South Main Street. Tell them the Get Lost podcast sent you. Now, back to the show.
1: So, what is really disastrous for all people along coastlines and certainly Indigenous people um, on, on coastlines is with a rising ocean comes an eroding home. So the lower Quinault village is washing away. And in, um, you know, a few decades from now, we'll no longer be a place that we go to visit. And it's not just a place that we go to visit. I'm talking about our ancestral villages, our ancient burial grounds, really important. Um, and, um, yeah, just deeply important like places. You, to you're Quenult saying you people.
0: physically will not be able to visit them.
1: It will not be safe or viable to go down and be stand on that land as our ancestors have stood and partake in ceremony the way that our ancestors have partaken in, part- in ceremony.
0: This feels like something that I'm not able to truly grasp mm-hmm. because I don't have that connection. I mean, my ancestry here only goes back a couple hundred years. Sure. And I know... That my history, uh, thanks to my parents being very bored and old and having nothing to do but research on Ancestry.com, they would say it goes back to before the founding of the country, which would be considered by some to be old. But it's really not in the perspective that you're talking about. And I don't have a place.
1: Right. There's
0: not a place. Mm -hmm. I don't have that. So... I imagine the connection here is is much more difficult because because of the actions of mankind, humankind, I should say. Um, you're losing a piece of yourself.
1: Yeah, it's it is beyond words to explain what that is to Quinault people. But I will say, you know, I know not everyone's going to be able to relate to you know being a 142nd generation quinault fisher that is watching their land wash away and that land raised me just like your land back in tennessee raised you Mm -hmm. and every single one of us like is actually tied to a place. So, I mean, if anyone could imagine, you know, the land that raised them, the lake that raised them, the land or waterscape, the place that they grew up, the forest that they went and trotted as a kid, whatever land raised you, imagine that washing away without um, any way to stop it. And the best thing that you can do is just move everybody out of the way while you can. So this is what Quinault people are facing. And they are moving the Lower Village um, to a a new site, uh, which is, you know, the site's wonderful. There's um, a really great cultural center. And there's been a lot of support from various administrations to um, help in that move. And at the end of the day, we are saying goodbye to our, the places where our ancestors are buried. We're saying goodbye to these places that um, are just so a part of who we are, baked into the social fabric, baked into our very identity. We are going to have to say goodbye to that within our generation. That's hard. Yeah. I
0: mean, it, that truly feels like something is lost.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's there's getting lost and then there's like just lost. Just lost. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Just lost. Um, So this moving, um, can you elaborate on what all is involved in that process?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, There's kind of like a master project plan. QuinalIndianNation.com like, posts that up but essentially there's um land cleared homes being built a community center a new school like all of these things so eventually um people will start moving into those places and then just no one's allowed to like move back into the lower village is Mm -hmm. my understanding the thing is with this type of move is um it's (laughs) it's difficult to execute and it takes a lot of planning and innovation which um quinault leaders are known for innovative uh work and creating pathways into the future so Mm -hmm. quinault leadership has got this down and it will happen it is just you know what's the what's a good way to let go of a piece of your land and say goodbye to it um so it's a it's a painstaking process
0: it sounds painstaking Mm -hmm. um and what comes to mind in an In a different way, kind of goes back to those dams we talked about, but Mm -hmm. there were a lot of communities um, in Tennessee, in the Tennessee River Valley, uh, Alabama, Georgia, that were were like towns for 100, 150 years that the government came in and said, hey, guess what? Uh, We're building a damn dam, (laughs) so you have to move. And now there are lakes that um, people fishing the Bassmaster Classic know there's ruins under there. Um, but this is a little bit different because it's not a government project it's just the inevitable result
1: mm-hmm. of
0: climate change right now
1: yeah and i think like the the that's the question is like the inevitability like how much can we affect that at this point and how much i mean of it is truly inevitable it's kind of hard to um navigate that And at the same time, like, accept that it is going to go. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. As we wind down here, I want to ask you about the outdoor community as a whole. Yeah. Um, Because you're not just an outdoors person that loves to fish and you're not just a storyteller that loves to document. Um, But you're a member of this rather small community of fishing people, Mm -hmm. uh, recreational fishing. Um, And within that community, I've worked in that for seven or eight years writing for outlets like Bassmaster Magazine, shooting bass fishing tournaments for Major League Fishing.
1: Yeah, you've been all up in it. I've
0: I've been all up in it really very much by accident. Um, But as a freelancer, you know, you get work where you can find it. And Mm -hmm. when companies treat you right, which I'm proud to say like Major League Fishing and Bassmaster especially have all done, you stick with those clients. Of course. Um, and there are great stories to be told but in my experience that industry is not super inclusive sure yeah i don't find it to be inherently exclusive Mm -hmm. i just feel like there could be more representation all around sure when it comes to the balance between men and women when it comes to people of color Mm. like it's just it feels like the professional aspect of that industry doesn't really reflect the people that you see fishing every day around the lake.
1: Yeah, totally, totally. And a lot of those folks, and I'm gonna name them, black, indigenous, people of color, women, families, uh, young ones, don't always see themselves uh, in the outdoor industry. It's hard to see representation of them. So sometimes it doesn't feel comfortable to go and they do feel excluded. Here's the thing what I really want to do is help create that sense of belonging because we all can belong in fishing and in the outdoors and recreating. So I want to help break down some of those barriers. And like, I hope that women and indigenous people and, um, and anyone through my adventures and experiences and teaching and mentoring can see themselves doing anything that I'm doing.
0: Do you feel like through your TV show, um, and through like situations where you get on the today show and you're suddenly broadcast to a national audience for however long that segment is, um, do you feel like that does move the needle a little bit and it helps a young girl somewhere see you and say, Oh, I can be like her. I can do that.
1: So... I can speak, I can't speak for them, but I can speak from my experience. When I stepped out in the Quinault River and decided I love fishing and I want a guide, I looked over and I looked around me and I saw Letty and Lisa, two women guides that were out there every single day and doing it. It never crossed my mind that I couldn't be a great, an amazing salmon and steelhead guide because I had that representation. So you had it. Yeah, it was there for me. And to be honest with you, if I saw no one that looked like me, I might've focused a little bit more on how hard it was to get involved with it. It was hard enough with, you know, even with all of the advantages that I had, yeah. it was hard. Yeah. Um, and sometimes like feeling like a sense of belonging like, don't we all just want to feel that sense of belonging? Like I felt like I belonged cause I saw them belong out there. Yeah. And that helped me feel like this is something that I can do. And I'm hoping that my, um, presence, just my very presence out, um, on the water and in media, allows people to say like, wow, like I can totally do what she's doing. She's, she can do it. Like that's something that's available and accessible to me.
0: So another question I have harkens back to an episode that we launched just um two or three shows back with Malik the Martian and outside ain't free project. Yeah. But we talked about barriers to entry in the outdoors. Yeah. Uh, Malik's world is, is hiking, climbing, camping, snowboarding. Mm-hmm. Your world is fishing. What are the barriers to entry in the sport?
1: So, there's several, and a lot of them are the same as Malik's. Is that his name? Yeah. A lot of them are the same as that. So, like, you're still going out into very similar environments. You're in the outdoors, you're often alone, or you're often, like, in, you know, early morning, late night, in the dark, around, like, a lot of people that might not feel comfortable for people of color, might not feel comfortable for women, certainly. Yeah. I think, unique to fishing, sometimes people feel like, I have to have all of this stuff and all of this knowledge in order to participate. And people can be a little bit like secretive about fishing knowledge and fishing. Spots. Oh,
0: totally. I mean, if you look at fishing hashtags on Instagram, mm-hmm. there's so many photos of a fish and the people like go to this, they do this weird thing where they like blur the background.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like one, that seems like a lot of effort.
1: It does. too. Also <laughs> like that's,
0: Come on, man.
1: And like I see both sides, right? I see people like I, I don't want to blow up this spot because I don't want to like a bunch of people to come in and overfish it. Like generally people do have good intentions, but there's also just good old fashioned gatekeeping happening too. Sure. Yeah. And people feel that. New people feel that. Like, hey, like, you know, if you ask somebody like, okay, I've got this stuff, I spent all this money on it. Where do I go? Well, I'm not telling you, no river names. Like yeah. what
0: <laughs> locals only it's, it's like point break,
1: right? Yeah. Which is like hilarious as an indigenous person. Like <laughs> you don't like that, huh? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, but I think like it's that kind of gatekeeping that can often make people just feel unwelcome. And it's not that it has to be such a dire thing that people are saying like, Oh, you can't come out here. That's not what we're talking about. That's yeah. not really happening. What's happening is people go and try and no one's helping them. They don't have a mentor and then they fail and then they don't want to keep going back and yeah, failing. because
0: fishing's hard, man. It's like, hard. Like, you're probably not going to catch a fish the first time or two or three. Right. I mean, I know how to fish pretty well, and I for sure don't always catch something when I go. Um, it might help if I didn't have a camera around and I wouldn't be distracted.
1: I but. watched you whale on bass down in Florida the last time we were there together. I think that the people should know. To be fair, that was
0: (laughs) only thanks to the magic of Disney.
1: (laughs) That was Disney magic.
0: (laughs) We were fishing underneath Cinderella's castle. (laughs) True statement. True statement. I
1: mean, yeah, there were no lies. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks
0: to the folks at Disney for helping that get set up. Um, Ash, the last question I have for you before I let you go, Mm -hmm. I want to talk to you about the field of environmental history. Mm -hmm. Um, As you look at your, field as a historian and you start to see a future in this topic called environmental history. Yeah. Like, where do you see that going?
1: I see that providing context that we just don't have all of the time in order to make really great decisions about where we want to take things next. And when I say things, I mean like decisions about the environment. Yeah. So on a large scale that, on a much smaller scale, I think that people are truly hungry to understand more about these places, as I've been saying, these places that raise them. Why are there Pacific salmon in the Great Lakes? There's a really specific reason and a really important history behind that You know, salmon restored an entire ecosystem in that area. There's a lot of really interesting history that allowed these places that we know and love to become what they are, both in the wonderful ways that we love them and in the ways that are really, really difficult and hurting them. And I think there's a lot of hunger and people want to understand what those are respective to their area and their slice of the world. Yeah. I want to share that with them because it's good.
0: I look forward to, to that. Because to me, whether you're on the water or whether you're in a stack of papers or whether you're around a campfire, um, it's all about storytelling. Yeah. And that is the history of humanity. That is Ashley Lewis. Follow her on Instagram at Bad Ash Outdoors for updates, uh, to engage with her reels, fishing tips. I mean, honestly, a great follow for anyone that is interested in the outdoors at all in any capacity. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Joe. The Get Lost Podcast is a production of Sold Outside Exploration Company. Follow us on Instagram at Get Lost Podcast for the scoop on merch and new episodes.